Exactly one year has passed since George Floyd was murdered in broad daylight by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. A video shot by a teenage girl showed Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. The video spread across the globe and sparked a summer of protests in 2020. Marches, rallies, uprisings, all rooted in a simple message, Black Lives Matter. It remains to be seen how much Floyd's murder and the subsequent conviction of Chauvin will change the problem of race in the United States, but it has changed the lives of thousands, if not millions of people. Folks who are already longtime activists, folks who are just starting to get politicized, and even people who never imagined themselves protesting out in the streets in one day were outraged enough by Floyd's killing to say, never again, and to start fighting for change. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is May 25th, 2021. U.S. citizens are warned not to travel to Japan for the Tokyo Olympics. Power outages are expected to hit California this summer. And LA teen punks, the Linda Lindas, release an early contender for song of the year, Racist Sexist Boy. Sometimes the songs write themselves. Today, on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, we talked to three people who participated in last summer's actions. Joseph Williams is an organizer with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Brianna Noble is the owner of Mulatto Meadows, a business in Northern California that seeks to diversify the horse riding world. And Carrington Pritchett is a student in Bakersfield, California, who is also a freelance photographer. Three radically different backgrounds, one purpose last summer, honor the life of George Floyd. Joseph, Brianna, Carrington, welcome to The Times. Thank Thank you you. for having us. So on this one-year anniversary, what are all of you feeling? It's honestly, it it leaves you speechless. That's pretty much the the whole emotions, the emotion. It, It hasn't, it feels like it has happened just 10 minutes ago and it's still fresh. I don't think it's something that we will ever really recover from it was a weight on not just those that are on the side of my community but just my community as a whole it will never be lifted off of us yeah brianna what do you think um i have to say i feel the same way as i think that's a really hard question for us to answer i know for me it makes me almost um, feel a little bit numb um, simply because the question that floats around in my head is, is anything going to change? Has anything changed? That's the real question that I have. And I wish I had a good positive answer to that. And I I simply don't. And that frustrates me and, and frankly pisses me off a little bit. And there's been so many Black men and women killed by law enforcement. Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland. Some were caught on videotape, some weren't. All led to some protests, but none on the scale of George Floyd. Joseph, what was it about Floyd's murder that got to you? I can't say that it got to me any any more so than, than other things that have happened, especially here in L.A. We've been doing this work um, you know, day after day, week after week with the countless folks who have been murdered by police and have not gotten the kind of public support and response that George Floyd received 
So for me in particular, it wasn't necessarily that George Floyd's murder was different. It was that the conditions in which most American people experienced that were different, right? Um, folks were in their homes, sitting down, uh, dealing with a pandemic and, you know, right. the economic fallout, the social and emotional fallout and, and being really forced to slow down where folks had the time and the mental capacity to actually say, damn, this is wrong. This is wrong, unjust, and it's not what our country should be like. And and folks took to the streets because of it. You see people from all walks of life. That to me what was so remarkable. Suburbs, rural areas coming up. Brianna, you took your horse Dapper Dan to a rally in Oakland and immediately photos of it became iconic. You know, you and Dapper Dan just marching on, fist up in the air. You obviously did this on purpose. And what was that message that you wanted everyone to get at that particular moment? You know, I just wanted people to pay attention to it. Um, For me, I think Joseph hit the nail on the head. People were just in the right time and space to be able to do something. It's not that this angered me any more or less than anything else that happened. But for me, I grew up in Oakland and I was down there for Oscar Grant. And I will never forget being a teenager and taking part in in watching that happen. And for me, um, you know, I, I moved off to school in the Central Valley and then I became a mother. So as all of these other people that died, happened and people protested, I was not in a space in my life where I felt like as a breastfeeding mother, I could walk away from my child and do something. Or I was so far away in the valley, I couldn't come back to do something about it. And so when this happened amidst the pandemic, you know, 10 years after Oscar Grant and the same crap is happening, I need to do something. Such a beautiful image because it's not just, I mean, the image itself, a Black woman, an awesome horse, but it also ties into this hidden history. And so much of what goes on in the United States is the erasure of Blacks from our history, from our society, from our culture. And it, it was just amazing. It was just an amazing action that you took. It it really just motivated me to be in that space in time where, like Joseph said, we had time to do something. Um, it's ticked me off that all the cameras are facing showing off the destruction. They're not focusing on what has happened, the life that was lost. They're focusing on the destruction of things, not of someone's life. And that really ticked me off. And, you know, going back to how I felt when Oscar Grant died, I could scream my head off and nobody would listen to me. It does not matter how deep my words are. It does not matter how, you know, influential I, my sign I, I thought it was. It did not matter. No one would pay attention to me or my message. And the only time I felt like in my life that people pay attention to me is when I'm sitting on top of my horse. People turn their heads immediately and say, wow, a black woman on a horse, that's interesting, that's strange. Or they see me going through the city and say the same thing. So I thought to myself, maybe if I take my horse down here before the protest, I'm going to give the camera something to look at. I'm going to make our cause known. I'm going to make you look at something other than this destruction and have this be the headline instead of windows smashed by rioters. Coming up, We'll continue our conversation about the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Carrington, you're from Bakersfield. That's the homeland of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a Republican. Very, very red place. 
very different from Oakland and Los Angeles. So what was your experience like in trying to organize there? Well, you're 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 100 percent correct. It is the largest uh, conservative county in California. So it was our support system is so hard here because when we had the march for Breonna Taylor, um, a gang of Trump supporters came and invaded our march, pepper spray, you name it. They came with it all. And then also the SWAT team came. So all of that in one night tells you the dynamics of Bakersfield, California, with how they feel about Black people. I live in the white, rich white conservative area of Bakersfield. So when I'm walking down the street, all eyes are on you. And so when we try to bring together people for marches, for a rally, it's very hard because as Bree said, the media will already go to violence. They will already think, oh, this is an, an Antifa trying to destroy our city. We're not trying to destroy the city. We're trying to build up the city. And so when the media lied on us and said that we were out there causing violence, when in other words, they were, the other side were, it really showed us that we're not really cared for here. It was um, a very solemn occasion when we left. You know, we all gathered together at a local restaurant trying to find ways, another way to do this. And from then on, it hasn't happened because of fear. Here in Bakersfield, it's, it's a lion's den. I would love to just piggyback on that. Again, this assault on our communities has not stopped, right? And so literally one of our, our youth, her uncle was murdered by Kern County Sheriff's Department after George Floyd was murdered. Kern County is where Bakersfield's located. That's in Central California. Right. And so we actually went out to Kern County to the Sheriff's Department, organized a protest with the family of Michael Lewis Sr. Um, to uplift his name and to demand justice and accountability. And we were faced with some of the same violence that Carrington has talked about. Even though this was a peaceful event, the family was coming together to demand answers and transparency for their loved one who was murdered. There were folks who came out with uh, Trump flags, Blue Lives Matter flags, you know, and organize an entire counter protest where they were antagonizing, yelling at, cussing at this family who had just experienced this huge loss, right? Their loved one was stolen from them by the folks who are supposed to be protecting and serving, and they can't even ask for answers or transparency or an explanation without facing further attacks, right? Not only by the police who were there and who also uh, we're attacking the family in some ways and, and emboldening and almost encouraging, you know, these white supremacists, Trump supporters, you know, et cetera, to, to attack the family. Right. Literally, at one point, physically attacked members of, of Michael Lewis Sr.'s family as they were holding a, a vigil and protest. Well, I would definitely agree with you on that, because even the um, tension between black people and the Kern County um, Police Department, this hasn't just started. My mom, she is 52 years old. When she was just a teenager, my uncles were brutally mistreated, arrested, and beaten by the Bakersfield Police Department. It was so bad that my grandmother walked past my uncle because she didn't recognize who he was for how brutally <laughs> disfigured his whole face was from them beating him. And he's still suffering from that. And that was just over 
almost 50 years ago. This is nothing new in Bakersfield. It's nothing new anywhere where there's black folks and brown folks. Bree, what about in the barrier? Have you seen a shift in the police departments there ever since, you know, in the, in the wake of George Floyd? I don't think I'm the best person to be able to comment on um, the state uh, between the people and the police and everything here because a majority of my time is spent out, you know, in the more rural areas on the outskirts of the city, really trying to positively impact our children. And in that work, you know, you think of the equestrian community tends to be pretty conservative. I only know this because I have uncles, cousins who have their horses and whatnot. They tend to be a little bit more on the right side. So how has your message, your, your actions been received by your equestrian community? Um, it is completely hit or miss. Um, on one side of it, we've seen a lot of our allies come out in some amazing support of our causes. So what I did, um, I never thought I'd see in my life, uh, the equestrian community begin to change. And you're starting to see people that look like me on the fronts of our magazines and, um, you know, people trying to uplift the few of us that are here. On the other side, we have gotten blatant racism that's completely out in the open. So what's shifting and changing now is the governing bodies that um, control all of our equestrian sports are now taking um, their stance and really trying to support a lot of what we're trying to do. We need to know who our allies are and who our enemies are. And so this is doing just that. And um, I'm just excited to see who picks what side of the battle, because at the end of the day, change is coming. We're seeing this conversation about Black Lives Matter hitting all parts of cultures and families and workplaces. Uh, how do you all feel about this? Joseph, I'll start with you because you've been doing this work for a long time. I think it's it's encouraging in some ways for sure, right, that, that folks are at least willing to have these conversations. You know, we, again, having done this work for almost six years now and Black Lives Matter being almost eight years old, um, there have been times in the last eight years where folks have refused to say Black Lives Matter, where folks have refused to acknowledge, right, that, that police violence exists and is real. There's definitely still those folks, right? Those folks are still out there, but there's a much greater willingness, I think, in the mainstream conversations to, to at least acknowledge that this is happening and that it's an issue that needs to be addressed. You know, whether it's police departments or elected officials or, or other folks have been trying to address these issues have been not enough. You know, I, I don't think statements are enough. I don't think I think we need real transformative policy change, right? And a reimagining of what public safety looks like in our communities. And I think part of that is hopefully being able to build on these conversations and start to talk also about the history, right, of our country. Like you said earlier, Gustavo, part of the reason that these conversations seem so new is because of the erasure, right, of our history. Even the complete lack of understanding that literally the history of law enforcement in the United States is one of racial and economic exploitation. So many people marched last year and there's going to be commemorations today with the crowds big, but undoubtedly smaller. For the three of you, what questions or advice do you have for young people who want to participate, but maybe still don't know how to get into it? We'll start with Bree. I think my advice has always been for people to just find what you're good at and try to do the best that you can in whatever your lane is, you know? So my my big thing that I've tried to, to keep with, you know, um, some of this sort of fame that I've had that come with this is to say, hey, look, 
Me, I'm a horsewoman, okay? I can use horses as a medium to inspire positivity in my community, and that's what I'm going to do, and that's the lane that I'm going to stay in. Now, you might be a doctor, you know, or you might be a a person that's going to, um, you know, be changing laws, you know, and things like that. Do the best that you can. Work with an organization like Black Lives Matter or some of these other organizations that can help guide you on how you can impact change. Um, but that, to me, is really how change is going to happen. It's just by everybody doing um, what they can in whatever field that they're good in. So find what you're good at and impact change that way. I agree with that. You know, I'm not really one to just be out in the forefront or in the spotlight. When um, all of this occurred with George Floyd, I have been on social media. I have been doing just like this. I've been doing roundtables on YouTube and both on Facebook Live, talking with those who do not have an understanding of what we go through every day. So that has been my way of activism and my way of speaking out. So if you're one that's like me, that that's not really in the scene of just in-person marches, get on social media and talk to your base, talk to your audience, whoever that may be, talk to your friends, talk to your community and try to find ways that you all can do something while we're right now in the age of technology. You can do um, polls, you can do uh, Instagram lives, you can do everything you can. You can bring on your local leaders, your local community leaders and have them on to see what they're doing and try to get connected with them. Trust me, you have all the resources out there to do so. You can do it with all that you can. Just try to find it. You have the heart. I like that idea of staying in your lane, especially if you're not too comfortable. We're all good at one thing that in our mind. So just do that as good as you possibly can. And final thoughts for you, Joseph, especially on this anniversary, what that legacy can mean, especially for those folks who maybe didn't want to participate last summer. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Carrington, using your social media platforms, connecting with the folks in your community, having these really important conversations. Um, also agree with Bree. everyone has something to offer to the movement, right? Everyone has unique t skills, talents, abilities, experience, network um, to offer and, and to use to, to help push us towards liberation, whether that's art, music, you know, horses, you know, whether you're an educator, you know, you can impact this movement in, in whatever um, your field of expertise is. Our only way um, to build real power in this country is to organize ourselves as black folks, as other opp oppressed communities. We have to organize ourselves and build and demand power. And we see that again, if you're a student of history, you know, as uh, Frederick Douglass says, right, power concedes nothing without demand. The powers that be are not gonna stop killing us because we say, please stop. So really encourage folks, use your skills, your talents, your abilities to, to push the movement forward and absolutely join an organization that is organizing to build power in your community. I like that. I'm just taking away that word. Let me just push that word again, organize. Organize, organize. Amen. Thank you so much for this conversation, all of you. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot, Carrington and Bree. It was great hearing from y'all as well. That was Joseph Williams, an organizer from Los Angeles, Brianna Noble, an equestrian in Northern California, and Carrington Pritchett, a student and freelance photographer in Bakersfield. All are speaking about the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. 
that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, The Times will take a deep dive into star pitcher Fernando Valenzuela's impact on the Dodgers, Major League Baseball, and the Latino community in Los Angeles 40 years ago. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our editors are Julia Turner and Shawnee Hilton. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias.